<laughs> All right. That's good to know. I, it's uh, a joy for my wife and I um, to see so many students uh, from our short time at Faith. We're only there for three years that we had in, uh, that I had in classes, or she knows from uh, working in student life. Um, I, I was it was more than I expected actually when we got here. I was looking up and and uh, you know probably 30 students, 20 of them, you know, you'd expect are working on staff here, but there's probably another 10 of them that are here um, and uh, um, just, you know, either with their family or they're, you know, married themselves. And, and that's just kind of, this is kind of a joy for us to see, you know, God's working in their lives and, and how he's using them. It is interesting to me, though, that I feel like some of them um, are sitting a lot closer than they ever sat in my classes. So I don't know, like, if that's the, you know, effect of family or what that might be. But anyways, yeah, I'm, I'm looking at you, Logan Fincham. I'm thinking that. He was on as the back row all the time. So not that he wasn't paying attention, but that, that was his spot, man. So he's, he's up about three rows from that. So I feel like that's family there. So that's good. Um, no, this has been, it's been a joy. It's been good to, to see that. Uh, we're going to be in Ephesians 4 again uh, this morning. Uh, people lie. That is, that's not a controversial statement, is it? Um, what might be controversial, actually, is how often people lie. Uh, one article um, said this, according to a study conducted by the University of Massachusetts, 60% of adults cannot have a 10-minute conversation without lying at least once. So 60% of adults, 10-minute conversation, um, can't do it without lying at least once. But, but that number makes it sound better than it really is, actually. Those people in the study who did lie, so the 60% who did lie, actually told an average of three lies during their brief chat. And I, I know you're sitting there right now insisting that you'd be part of the 40%. That's what the article says that didn't lie. And that's what the liars thought in the study, too. <laughs> When they watched the taped conversations back, they were shocked at how many fibs they had told. And it's, it's, it's so lying, it's so easy and natural for us that 60% of adults cannot have a 10 minute conversation without lying at least three times. We lie a lot. The article goes on to say that 40% of people lie on their resume and that 90% of people looking for a date online lie on their profile, 90%. Speaking of lying on your resume, there have been several high-profile examples, including a Yahoo CEO, the Dean of Admissions at MIT, the CEOs of Bausch & Lomb and Radio Shack that lied about their resumes. Um, but the one that I, that I remember hearing first, was, this is from a few years ago now, was George O'Leary. So this is over 20 years ago now, but he was hired by the University of Notre Dame to be its new head football coach. And way back on April 1st, 1980, George O'Leary had filled out a one-page bio for the Syracuse University Football Media Guide since he was their new defensive line coach. And in that bio, he claimed that he had earned varsity letters playing football at the University of New Hampshire from 66 to 68. And probably he thought that that was, you know, a lie that no one would discover. I mean, you know, you guys didn't even know the University of New Hampshire played football until I just said it, right? <laughs> It turns out he actually never played any games there, though some players remembered him working out, lifting weights, the whole thing. 
in preparation for playing football. So he was the guy who always said, hey, I'm getting ready for the season, and then he was never actually on the team. Um, and so, of course, he never, learned any, he never earned any varsity letters. That lie, which he told in 1980 for the media guide, was repeated at every school he coached until 2001 when he was hired at Notre Dame. At some point, he also falsely claimed to have a master's degree from New York University. That lie followed him for years also. So George O'Leary's lies surfaced and his Notre Dame career lasted five days. New head coach, five-day career. So imagine you're Notre Dame. You are hiring a coach for one of the most high-profile positions in the country only to find out that he's been lying on his resume for years. And it probably did not seem that serious to George O'Leary when he was just a defensive line coach at Syracuse. But it ultimately cost him his dream job. It didn't end his career, though. Um, in 2004, he took the helm of the University of Central Florida, maybe not quite as prestigious as Notre Dame, um, and he coached there until he retired in 2015. They actually have a term for this. It's called puffing up your resume. And man, that actually sounds a lot more innocent than lying, doesn't it? <laughs> I mean, I, I wasn't lying. I just puffed up my resume a little bit. Humanity has a problem with telling the truth. And I suppose we could list other high-profile examples for this entire hour. People lie. And it doesn't just happen out there. It happens in the church. Christians lie too. But we shouldn't. We know that. This morning, we're going to see a clear command to quit lying. That sinful behavior marks the lives of unbelievers, and it has no place in our lives. So, you and I, as we mentioned last time, you need to change radically from what you were. The old behavior is not good enough anymore. The ways that we lived before we were saved, they just don't fit us anymore. Not if we're Christ followers. We cannot live like we used to. We are, as the theme is this week, riding for the brand. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We cannot live the way that we used to. But the good news is that we can change, that it's possible for you to grow. And so this morning, we want to look at two changes in our lives. There are more changes here, and we're going to get to those in the next few sermons. So last time we looked at Ephesians, it was Ephesians 4, essentially 17 through 24, where we learned that putting off, putting on, and thinking differently are part of the Christian life. And Paul describes us as having already put off the old person and already put on the new person. But there's still a consistent need to keep putting off the behaviors of our old man. And since you've put on the new person, your behavior should reflect the new person. So Paul has spent three chapters in Ephesians on rich doctrinal content. I, I can't get over the truth from chapter one, if you read Ephesians one, verse three, that we have all spiritual blessings in Christ. But there are many, many more truths about Christ and about salvation that we talked about but Ephesians doesn't stop after chapter three. Truth always leads to action, and it's not enough for us to learn about the wonders of salvation. We need to apply what we've learned in the nitty gritty of life. So as we read 425 through 32 this morning, you'll notice that all the verses seem to have this similar construction. We're actually only gonna get through uh, about verse 27, but, yeah, but you'll notice through 25 through 32, they have this similar construction. They all have, to have some commonalities, and that is this. They are relational. They all deal with relationships. This is the, the, the rubber meets the road part of life here. There always seems to be a put off and put on. You'll see that there. 
And there always seems to give a reason for the command, either directly stated or implied. So why should I do this? And again, that matches up with a pattern that we saw yesterday. Put off something, put on something, think differently. And so we'll describe those as we go through this. So what's the first radical change that you must have? Put off dishonesty, put on truth. Put off dishonesty, put on truth. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. So we mentioned that the word put away was used in infinitive form in verse 22. It has the same tense and voice here. So Paul is clearly seeing a, a parallel between this verse and putting off the old man of 422. This is how we grow. So even though we have a new nature, there are remnants of the old man that still plague us and we need to put them off. So put offs in the following verses are trademarks of the old way we used to live. Put on the marks of the new person. So what do we need to put off in 425? Lying. I mean, it seems simple enough, right? Maybe even unnecessary. I mean, surely Christians don't lie. And as I look out at this group of people, I'm sure there are, you know, no liars here this morning, right? Uh, there are, though. Believers sometimes lie just as much as unbelievers and for the same reasons. People lie for convenience. I remember in a church I uh, pastored one time, a, a family in the church telling me, uh, and, and I, they knew I was their pastor, I don't know, you know, uh, but they, they told me, they said, yeah, we, um, their uh, parents attend the church and they didn't want to go to lunch with them uh, after church, I don't know why, and so they just told them that they had lunch plans. And they told me, they said, yeah, you know, we, we didn't have lunch plans, but we just didn't want to go to lunch with them. <laughs> Not only are they your parents, you're in the same congregation. Why, why and they're telling me this, why, and, and maybe for some of you that's not stunning because you're like, well, that, that makes perfect sense. <laughs> and maybe some of you parents are rethinking, did they really have lunch pans? Now? I'm wondering if they, they told me. People lie for convenience. It's easier than telling the truth to someone. People lie because they fear what others will think if they know the truth about them. And this idol of reputation leads many to lie. And the reason we lie is we want something and we think that lying will get it for us. Maybe it's, it's ease or convenience. Maybe it's just easier to lie to someone. I mean, if I tell the truth, it could be uncomfortable. It could be awkward. It could be worse. Maybe they'll yell. Maybe it's esteem. I think this one... This is a motivation for us. We want others to think we're better than we really are. We're embarrassed and ashamed of who we are or what we keep doing. And better to lie than to find out someone, from someone who I really am. But those are the thoughts of the old man. That is how unbelievers think. We cannot think that way anymore. We cannot lie. We have to quit lying. The old person had a lifestyle of deceit, verse 22 says. Lay that aside. Now, there's several ways that we lie. There's outright deceit. As I said, some of us just do that. But I think there's other ways that we kind of justify in our mind, like embellishments, that we, we make our stories sound better than it is. We add fictional details that make things a little bit better than, than they are. Or we exaggerate. We exaggerate the deficits of others or our own strengths. It's not honest. 
Even sarcasm can be honest. Oh, sure, Craig, that's dishonest. Yeah, you see what I did there? I downplayed it and make the accusation look silly. That's what sarcasm can do. It can be dishonesty. And I say this as a person who thoroughly loves sarcasm, okay? It pains me to say stuff like that. Hiding stuff from each other is a form of lying. You see, maybe when I said outright deceit, you're like, oh yeah, man, I'm so glad that my spouse and I, we don't do that, and we don't do that with our kids. But do you hide stuff? I think of 1 John 1, where we're told to walk in the light. But if we walk in the light as he's in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. We don't have time to tease out all the implications of that passage. We're in Ephesians 4, but man, you should spend some time there. It is amazing that, that actually walking in the light, being honest with each other, leads to greater fellowship with each other. We think it would lead to greater fellowship with Christ, and it does, but it actually promises that it leads to greater fellowship with each other. Some of you have um, preschoolers or younger elementary students, um, and, and your family doesn't have any secrets. Now, you might not have thought of it that way, but you don't have secrets because your kids spill them all, okay? They tell their Sunday school teachers and school teachers about all the goings on at your house. They're actually providing a vital service for your family. They're helping you walk in the light. I remember one time, my wife and I, years ago, we were doing junior church together, and you know, you're taking prayer requests, that's the best time to find out what's happening in the families in your church, by the way. Wow. Yeah. And uh, one of the kids said, um, pray for, I think it was his grandpa, pray for my grandpa, he bit a nurse. And this, the mom actually happened to be sitting back there, she was helping us as well, and she nodded her head and went, yeah. Like, man, there is a story there that I gotta find out about. Um, um, walking the light means having nothing to hide. And, and, and when our kids expose some of our family secrets, we, we wish there was a way to keep our preschoolers quiet, right? Like, like some of their stories are embarrassing. I mean, the truth is preschoolers do not give context to stories, okay? They, they don't. They don't. They don't know nuance, okay? But have you ever thought that maybe that response of how do I keep this preschooler quiet is fundamentally flawed. That you and I should be honest about who we are and what our family is. The answer is not figuring out a better way to shut up your kids. The answer is becoming a different parent. When your preschooler tells your neighbor, daddy yelled at the lady at Walmart yesterday, the answer isn't keeping your kids from the neighbors. The answer is walking in the light. Humbly admitting your sin and seeking God's mercy to change. See, there are, there are seemingly small lies that still damage a marriage. They might seem harmless, but they're not. It's hiding, it's walking in darkness. And frankly, if this group is like any other group I've talked to about this, some of you need wholesale change before you can do this. You and your spouse hide information from each other all the time. You keep secrets, and because none of them seem that serious, Things like, hey, let's not tell dad what we bought today. Or don't tell mom we stopped at McDonald's on the way home since she's making supper. Or, you know, if mom or dad finds out um, you're gonna be in trouble, but I think we can keep this just between us. And because they don't seem that serious, you don't think it's a big deal to hide stuff from each other. 
In some cases, it might be one of the pillars of your marriage that you do this, and it's wrong. It seems better to hide in the shadows, but God encourages us to be honest. You have to quit lying and start telling the truth. We are not people that speak the truth as often as we think we are. We lie, but God wants us to be radically changed. It's a 180 degree change. Instead, he tells us, speak truth, only ever tell the truth. What is truth in this context? It's that which is reality or actual. It's in contrast to what is false. We know what the truth is. It's sort of a distraction to have to define it. True, sometimes a person has lied so much that they quiet their conscience and, and lying seems more like an instinct than a choice at that point. But it's still a choice. And it's still wrong, even if it's easy and natural. Verse 25 says, let each one of you, which reinforces your individual responsibility, that you are responsible to speak truth. Christians lie. It's sad, it's wrong. It's always a choice to please ourselves rather than please God. We want what we want more than we want to please God, and it's really that simple. Don't claim you love Jesus if you don't love truth. You love yourself, not Jesus. You're adjusting the truth to get what you want, and it's about you. It's not about someone else's feelings, although we claim it is at times, right? But that's a lie. How often have you found out that someone lied to you, and you said, oh my word, I am just so glad that he cared about me enough to lie to my face? Just so thankful. I mean, as you can see the love that he had for me, that he was willing to lie directly to me. None of us have ever thought that. In the history of mankind, that's never happened. Each of us prefers hearing the truth to being lied about, no matter how difficult it is. So don't claim you care so much that you lie, you only care about yourself. It's about your life being easier. Whom do we speak truth to? Verse 25 says, our neighbor, which normally means other human beings in general, but here he's actually talking about the household of faith, that we have a, a general responsibility to speak truth to everyone, that's in the Ten Commandments, but we have a special responsibility to speak truth to each other in the church. Why? What makes our relationships different? So, so we're supposed to put off dishonesty, put on speaking the truth. Why are we supposed to do that? How do we renew our mind here? Because, he says, we're members one of another. <clears throat> What's the most common metaphor used to describe the church? Probably a body, right? We, we, we are also the bride of Christ, um, scripture tells us that. The church is called a family. It's called the household of God. It's a living temple. But the most common metaphor seems to be the fact that we are the body of Christ. And that's what Paul is using here. And we're in the same body. And a body doesn't lie to itself. The hand doesn't lie to the foot. The elbow doesn't lie to the eyeball. The nose doesn't lie to the thumb. You and I are members of the same body and our relationships should be close. We have to be connected to each other. And connected people don't lie or shouldn't lie. Fellowship in the body is based on trust and trust is based on truth. It's interesting, one author points out that this word member is never used for members of an organization but only for members of an organism. In other words, it's not used for something dead, but for something alive. Like a leg is a member of a physical body. Members of an organization might not have close relationships. You might work in a, you might work in a, a business somewhere, and you, know, you don't have a close relationship with everybody there. 
um, maybe with nobody there. But members of an organism do. They must because they're connected. So you must put off lying and put on honesty because we're connected. We are members of the same body. Lying. I mean, maybe we should stop for prayer right now. I mean, are you a liar? It's the bad fruit of your old man. You've put him off. So don't live that way anymore. Don't hide stuff. Don't embellish. Don't exaggerate to make yourself look good and make someone else look worse. Don't lie. You've got to change radically from what you were. The second radical change in our passage here is put off sinful anger, put on impatience with anger. Put off sinful anger, put on impatience with anger. Be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So be angry and do not sin. That's a quote from Psalm 4, verse 4. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Selah. Now, maybe you've assured yourself that you don't lie, that that's something that other believers do, but not you. But I'll bet as we look at this passage, you'll have a harder time convincing yourself that you're not an angry person because anger seems universal. It's the first response we have when we don't get what we want. In his book, Uprooting Anger, Robert Jones defines anger this way. Anger is our whole personed active response of negative moral judgment against perceived evil. So it's more than just an emotion. It involves our whole person. It's an active response because our hearts are active. We're not passive. That, that idea of, of a passive heart response is the view of secular psychology. They look at us as people who are always acted upon and we don't have, we're not ever actors. But that's not how scripture talks about us. It says that our sin comes from our hearts, that we have active hearts. So that, that's this idea, um, and, and it's against perceived evil because you and I get angry about things that aren't necessarily objectively evil. We just perceive them to be. Now, it's possible that as I explain that definition, you're still defining anger as yelling and screaming or throwing stuff, and that is definitely anger. But anger is a continuum. At one end, you have the the low-level irritation and frustration. At the other end, we have violence in word and deed. And everything at both ends and in between is anger. Um, my uh, older brother had a temper when he was growing up, and I have not seen it in years, but it was apparent when we grew up. Um, that's, my, that's what you know, we called at the time, he, oh, he has a temper. And I always thought that I was the peaceful child because I didn't get angry, or so I thought. But I do get angry. On my best days, it's low-level irritation, but it's still anger. It's a sinful response to not getting what I want. Are you like me? Have you convinced yourself that you're not an angry person when you are? It's the old nature that needs to be put off. Verse 26 seemingly starts with a put on here. It's a command to be angry, which is kind of a bit unusual. Why would the Bible command us to be angry? Especially since 431 uses the noun form of the same word here and says all anger must be put away from you. We'll talk about that again later this week. So why would the Bible in the span of a few verses command us to be angry and then command us not to be angry? Well, if it's a command to be angry like it looks, let's not forget that it's also a command not to sin. So it's possible that it's a Hebrew idiom that doesn't actually command us to be angry, but permits it in some cases. Kind of like, in your anger, make sure you don't sin. It seems to be calling for righteous anger, not anger in general. And we know that it's possible to be angry and not sin because God gets angry. 
And the same word is used at times referring to God's anger, which is without sin. So anger doesn't have to be evil. Although that can help us understand this command, it's not the excuse for anger that you might initially think it is. Righteous anger is probably not an anger that you've ever known. Humans like to claim righteous anger a lot more than they actually experience it. Righteous anger, and I think you have this in your notes, reacts against actual sin. It's not a violation of your preferences, opinions, or ways of doing things. That's, I am just righteously angry now because my wife won't, and it's not gonna be actual sin. She violated your preference. That's not righteous anger. Righteous anger focuses on God and his kingdom, his rights, his concerns, not me and my kingdom rights and concerns. You, you call it righteous anger, but it's about the kingdom of you. I call it righteous anger, but it's about the kingdom of Craig. Righteous anger is accompanied by other godly qualities and expresses itself in godly ways. And that's maybe where they diverge the most. Your so-called righteous anger doesn't express itself in godly ways, does it? And I'll add that God's anger never controls him. He is in control of it. And your anger sometimes controls you. It's like mine does me. It seems strange to command anger in light of James 1, 19 to 20 and other passages that warn about anger. But I think what it's saying is that righteous anger is okay, even if you and I almost never have it, but most human anger is sin. That's just a fact. But even righteous anger cannot be indulged very long because in us, it leads to further sin. So I can start out being angry at the evil of abortion, which could be righteous anger. And I end up hating individual abortionists, which becomes sinful anger. And looking at verse 26, I think we can agree that it's a lot easier to be angry than it is not to sin, right? Any anger should be brief is what Paul is telling us. We can avoid further sin by ensuring that anger is short. Don't let the sun go down on it. it means deal with it quickly. And when you and your spouse don't talk to each other for days because of your anger, you're sinning, you're violating this passage. Don't simmer in your anger, deal with it. And notice the responsibility is yours. You need to deal with it. It doesn't say that you can give up on your anger if the other person comes around to your point of view. If you're angry at a coworker for weeks waiting for him to admit he's wrong, you're disobeying this command. You deal with your anger quickly even if the other person doesn't admit their error. It's easier if they do, and you should attempt to get it right, but if they don't, you still need to forsake your anger. Keep short accounts of anger. Settle them before the next day begins. That should be your habit to repent of your anger before you go to bed. If you sin against others in your anger, ask their forgiveness before bed. Be impatient with it. By that I mean don't tolerate it for long. Don't nurse your anger. So believers need to put off sinful anger and put on impatience with their own anger. Deal with it quickly. So put off, put on, and what's the why here? Well, the reason why is because when you get angry, you give the devil an opportunity to wreck your relationship. Anger specifically seems to give a devil a foothold in a relationship. And when it's not resolved quickly, it opens up a friendship to further destruction. When prolonged, Satan uses it for his purposes. Satan drives a wedge through anger. When I was younger, I did some log splitting with a sledge and a wedge, which of course, is the most exhausting way to do it. Um, and it really was more for exercise for me than anything and maybe a sense of accomplishment, I don't know. But if I hit that log all day with just a heavy sledgehammer, 
nothing happened. A log can actually endure a lot of pounding and not split open. But all I had to do was get that metal wedge started and it was inevitable that that log was gonna split open. I think that's what this is like. Or maybe, maybe it's like opening a paint can with a screwdriver, right? If you just use your fingers, you cannot get that metal lead off. But if you just get it started with a screwdriver, you can get it opened up quickly. You get that screwdriver in just the right spot, pry it, boom. That's what anger does. It gives the devil a slight opening in your relationship and he exploits it. He loves it. Through unresolved anger, you are giving the devil an open door to ruin your marriage, to ruin your relationships. But you thwart him when you deal with your anger. He wants to use your anger for his purposes. Anger is a fifth column in your ranks. This is especially important in marriage. If you don't deal with your anger quickly, it dissolves your relationship. And some of you know this by experience. Your marriage isn't what it should be because your habit is to let anger wind down over days and weeks rather than dealing with it quickly. When we first got married, I could sleep perfectly fine when things were unresolved between Laura and me. I had no problem falling asleep. And that was terrible sin. I was wrong. But thankfully, Laura was committed to getting right every day even when I wasn't. She would wake me up and that would make me angry. <laughs> it was anger in my own heart. She didn't, she didn't make me angry. But the good thing is that became a habit for us both. Rarely does anything fester between us overnight anymore. And that is God's grace. It is a radical change from what I was. I had no problem quieting my conscience and sleeping when we were unresolved. But God has changed me. And that prevents the devil from getting a foothold in our relationship. How about you? Maybe this is where your thinking needs to change. You might consider anger just an emotion and an emotion that you can't really control. I mean, you're Irish after all, or, or whatever. You have red hair, or whatever the excuse is. It just happens to you. But you have an active heart, and indulging anger gives the devil an opening, and you are helping him destroy a relationship. You need a 180-degree change. So what's the next step? What's the next step for you and I? Are you honest? A great step toward Christ is to confess your dishonesty and ask forgiveness. Are you thinking of a lie that you told right now? No matter how small, why don't you admit it and ask forgiveness? It is a difficult step. We, we kind of want to ease into not lying, right? You know, I, I mean, I, I know I do lie, but I kind of want to ease into being honest. But our instincts are all wrong. And maybe those instincts are exactly why we told a lie in the first place. Because we want to ease into honesty. The, the reason we want to ease into it is because we want to preserve our reputation which is probably the reason why we lied in the first place. So admit your lie, ask forgiveness, do it today, and then do it every time. Pretty quickly, you'll have a hatred for your own dishonesty. Jesus changed you. Quit lying. Put on truth, because you're connected to other believers through Christ. Do you hide things from your spouse? It seems small. It seems small. But maybe growth for you is talking to your spouse and confessing that you hide little things from him or her. Some parents go as far as to include their children in their deceit. Don't tell dad that. Don't tell mom that. Confess it. You might need to talk to your children and confess your sin to them. Don't hide stuff from each other. It's wrong. Are you an angry person? 
Yes, you are. We don't like not getting our way. We think it's okay because it's just mild annoyance or just a little disappointment or just a little frustration, but it's sin because it's anger. And you're disappointed because you're not trusting God's providence in your life. You wanted something to happen and it didn't. Now God's in control of that, but you don't like that. So start by admitting that you're an angry person. Is there someone that you've cut off in your anger? Maybe it's just temporary, like your spouse, or maybe it's been longer, like another family member or a former friend, and you are way past sunset in dealing with this anger. Repent. Repent of your disobedience and reach out to that, this week to that person. God can give you the strength to do right. Jesus died for sins just like this. Do you struggle with anger and you know it? Maybe you need to keep a written journal of episodes of anger or disappointment or frustration, whatever word you want to use for it. Notice especially the situation, what you said, did, or felt, what you were thinking or wanting, and you'll find that what you were wanting triggers your anger all the time, and you'll find that those wants tend to cluster around just a few particular idols, and that'll be insightful and make your confession more helpful. Forsake those idols, and your anger will lessen. I'd encourage you to buy Uprooting Anger, a Biblical Help for a Common Problem by Robert Jones or a small book about a big problem by Edward Welch. And I realize, you know, most guys do not like reading. Neither one of them is a super long book and they, they will pay dividends in your relationships. The, the small book about a big problem by Ed Welch is a gift-sized book with a reading a day for 50 days. So it's like a couple tiny pages every day for 50 days. And I, I think it's worth the price to spend a couple minutes reading that every day. If anger really does give Satan a foothold in your relationships, then a book like that could be well worth the price and the time it takes to read. So let me encourage you to do that. You have to change radically from what you were. What we read today are commands. You don't have an option here. You know, I get to say, you know what, I'm just, I'm gonna lie less. And be, we, we, we gotta put off all lying, put off all anger. We can't continue in the same way. We have to change. You must be honest because we're part of the same body and you must deal with your anger lest Satan take the, take the opportunity to break us apart. And by God's grace through Christ, you can. You can change. You can grow. Paul is not listing these things here as if they're impossible for us. He says, because of how God has changed you, you can continue to grow. You can be different here. We'll talk about two more areas of change this evening. Let me close this in prayer here. Father, we are new creations. You have made us thus. And we're so thankful for that. Thankful, God, that you changed us. And Lord, because of that, we do have a newfound ability to resist sin and to grow in righteousness. And I pray here, Lord, that specifically, when we think of truth, we think of anger, that God, you'd see us growing and speaking the truth more and see us growing in being less angry, Father. That we'd have more and more impatience with our own anger. That we'd not justify it or excuse it or think it's okay in this particular situation. But God, we confess and repent and tell the people around us that we're wrong for anger and ask their forgiveness. Help us to be Christians who are growing. We can grow. We're thankful for your enablement. In Christ's name. Amen.